Testing. All right. Nice sound. Thank you, Troy. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Suzanne Nasser. I'm a full-time faculty member in the Counseling and Career Development Center right here on campus. On behalf of the Celebrating uh, Women's History Month Committee, which includes myself, uh, my colleagues, Lisette Alvarado, Misty Williams, Jessica Crotty, Maura Visa, Maria Balmantes, and Adrian Stewart, we'd like to welcome you to today's event, a feminist look at uprisings in the Middle East, in which Dr. Nadine Neber will take a deep dive into how forms of state violence that currently shape the Middle East and North Africa region are feminist concerns and how feminist movements have helped expand the possibility of building alternative futures. Dr. Neber will draw on examples from Egypt, Iran, Lebanon, and Palestine, and she will focus on activist frameworks such as radical mothering, activism, and coalitional consciousness. Just a little bit about Dr. Neber. She is a scholar, activist, and professor in the Gender and Women's Studies Program and the Global Asian Studies Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She is the author and co-author of five books, Arab America, Gender, Cultural Politics, and Activism, which you all can check out because we have it here in the library. Um, race and Arab Americans, Arab and Arab American Feminisms, The Color of Violence, and Towards the Sun. She's a board member of the Arab American Action Network, editorial board member of the Journal of Palestine Studies, co-founder of the organization Mamas Activating Movements for Abolition and Solidarity, and founder of Liberate Your Research. She is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Pedagogies of the Radical Mother. Her work has been recognized through awards such as the American Study Association's Lifetime Achievement Prize and the YWCA WISE Women's Leadership Award. So it's really such an honor to have um, you here with us today, Nadine, um, on the occasion of International Women's Day, and especially for those of us who are closely following the escalation of violence in Palestine this year, but in the past few days especially, when Israeli state violence is disrupting people's capacity to mother, to protect, and to care for their loved ones. Just yesterday, Israeli occupation forces violently raided the Janine refugee camp, killing six Palestinians. And in the past week, we watched as Israeli settlers have been rampaging through the village of Huwara, assaulting Palestinian families. So we are looking forward to hearing from Dr. Nadine. Um, she's going to share her expertise and her reflections um, and the ways she's going to be mapping out for us the vibrant history of resistance and the crucial roles that women, um, that mothers, continue to engage in in order to survive imperialism, war, and colonization. So without any further ado, I'm going to give it up to Dr. Nadine. Hello, everybody. It's such a great honor to be with all of you, and I especially want to uh, uplift the work of uh, Suzanne Nasset on your campus, who just plays so many roles wearing multiple hats and is an inspiration for a lot of my work. And a great thanks to Moraine Valley and all the staff who helped make the event happen. So I have a lot to share with you. I have been doing research on the theme of radical mothering, um, and I'll be walking you through three case studies, which are, constitute really huge research projects that have been going on, you know, one of them for more than 10 years. So I'm just going to give you a glimpse and walk you through three case studies. And I'm just going to jump right in rather than even doing an introduction so you can get a glimpse of what the significance is of radical mothering for the purposes of liberation and revolution from Egypt to Palestine to Chicagoland. So we're just going to jump right into the Egyptian Revolution, which happened in 2011. How many of you know about the Arab Spring revolutions? So they were in 2011, not that long ago. The fact that you many did not raise their hand is a sign of how the US media and US society overall basically erases you know, exciting things happening in the Middle East. We usually only hear about you know, terrorism and oppressed women, but we don't remember 2011 
when 17 million people in Egypt overthrew their dictator who was in power for 30 years. This was one of the greatest revolutions of our times. It's actually one of the largest revolutions that's happened in modern times. And 50% um, of the revolutionaries were women. So um, out of that research, uh, and, and that revolution continues today, um, and it's important to note that the United States backs the authoritarian dictators in Egypt. The first uh, that I referred to was Hosni Mubarak, who was in power for 30 years, a horrible dictator who tortured his people and could never have done so without being the recipient, the third uh, reci largest recipient of US aid you know, all those years. Every US president supported this dictator, and including Biden now supports his predecessor, who has escalated the targeting of Egyptian people to a whole nother um, level, and his name is President Sisi. Some of you have heard of, how many of you have heard of Ala Abdel Fattah? I'll mention him in the talk. So he's a currently an Egyptian political prisoner who uh, was the famous blogger from the Egyptian Revolution of 2011, and he's currently still incarcerated. And there's a global movement to free Ala that many people in Chicago have been involved in. So when I speak about the Egyptian revolution, I'm gonna directly introduce the concept of radical mothering. A radical mothering isn't necessarily about identity, so it's not to say that we're only talking about mothers, but we're talking about mothering as a form of labor that entails taking forms of labor that mothers are end up positioned to do in society, like feeding people, keeping them warm, and thinking of how that form of labor can operate as a radical form of resistance. And then, uh, so that's mothering as a form of labor, but also we could think of mothering as a lens, which means a way of seeing the world. So it would be like saying, what if you took any political issue? Raise your hand and tell me a political issue you're interested in, anybody. Good one. So what if you saw them, <laughs> Brandon Johnson, okay. What if you saw the mayoral uh, election in Chicago through the lens of radical mothering? So that's what I'm saying, that you could take any issue and shift how you understand it. So if you saw the mayoral election through the lens of radical mothering, you might pay attention to how the future mayor's policies don't only affect you know, public life, but also affect what's happening in people's homes, which might then change how you think about healthcare or education, right? So mothering is a lens and a form of labor. So jumping right into the Egyptian revolution, my research on this topic focused on how if we look at the revolution through the lens of radical mothering, it actually can expand both how we think about the violence of authoritarian regimes, so it gives us a broader understanding of state violence, but radical mothering also expands the possibilities of liberation. So it can help us think about building revolutions that, that free more and more people. Um, and so, you know, I think radical mothering is really powerful. And so um, how then, um, I'll move to Palestine, and I'm working on this project with Suzanne Nasser, my co-author, my partner in crime in this project. So we use the concept of radical mothering when we think about Palestine and Israel. In short, I'm not gonna have time to explain what Palestine-Israel is, other than to say, think European colonization of Native Americans, think Israeli colonization of Palestinians. So we're talking about a colonial situation. So when we think of Israel's colonization of Palestine, when we think of how radical mothering matters there, we can think about a concept that Suzanne and I developed called um, reproductive justice by extension. So I'm giving you a lot of terms. So reproductive justice usually is thought about in terms of, um, you know, what's reproductive justice? What would be an example? What would you fight for if you said, I fight for reproductive justice? Think Roe versus Wade. What just happened, you know, at the end of the Trump era with Roe versus Wade? Abortion? United States? Anyone? <laughs> what happened? Where, where is the United States on the right to women having the choice to have an abortion? It's illegal. Yeah, in many states now, right? So usually that's when we say reproductive justice, people think abortion. 
and women's bodies, having the right to make decisions over your own body. But in our research, when we think about communities that are facing state violence, like police violence, like wars, reproductive justice is much broader. It can be, for example, if a mother gets separated from her child because the mother or the child have been incarcerated, reproductive justice would be to fight for that mother to have a relationship with her child and to be able to protect them and be there for them. So reproductive justice is broader than just the right to have uh, over your body and choices. It's also about many aspects of justice related to parenting and mothering and, um, you know, women and, and women's roles as mothers um, and beyond, maybe caretakers of their communities or their neighborhoods and how that can get disrupted when you are being targeted by the cops or by a military. So that's Palestine. And then the third piece that I'll be putting out there for you is around coalitional politics. So there's three concepts, radical mothering, reproductive justice by extension, and coalition. Coalition is where I try to make a connection between the struggle in Palestine and struggles in Chicagoland around police violence to show that radical mothering can also help us people interested, those of us interested in building solidarity across borders. And how can we realize that struggles that we're facing here in Chicago are deeply connected to the struggles that people are facing in other places like Palestine. So let's just jump right in to Egypt. So um, I'll just give you a little background on all modern nation states rely on mothering. And what I'm going to do now is explain to you why mothering is political. Mothering isn't, usually when we think of politics, we think of there's politics, which happens like outside the home, people giving speeches, law, you know, elections. And then we think that mothering is like this side thing that people do inside their homes. But what's important to note is that in the entire history of all modern nation states, governments have relied on mothering to sustain nation states. All we have to do is look at the history of the enslavement of black communities in the United States to realize the power of mothering to white supremacy. White supremacy necessitated targeting black motherhood to reproduce future slaves. We can think about Egypt. Egypt relies on the idea that women belong in the home for two reasons. One, to reproduce the, the nation state, which is actually based on the idea that the nation is a family. How many of you have ever heard rhetoric that implies, you know, about national unity and patriotism? You know, what's the main symbol that represents the United States when people landed here in Ellis Island? What is it? Yeah, so why is a woman the representative of the United States? That's directly related to how nation states use women and mothers and their bodies as symbols of the nation, the mother of the nation. So motherhood has always been political. And so um, we think of colonized communities targeting reproduction is essential to taking people's land. Because if you want to enact a genocide, you need to make sure that women don't have any more babies. So those are just a few examples of how mothering is and always has been political, especially when we're talking about, you know, histories after Europe was a superpower and then the United States, you know, building a white supremacist settler colonial nation state. So um, going from there, we could say that in, so whether we're talking about, let's say, if we talk about Egypt and that period before the revolution of 2011 and during the revolution of 2011, we're talking about an authoritarian regime, a dictatorship. So um, they, all, they used, the Mubarak regime used this idea that women belong in the home. So what they did is they painted and they used that to suppress activism and the revolution. So one of the things that they did is they said that if you're a woman and you're protesting, they said that you're a bad woman, you're a bad mother, if they were a mother. And so they equated protesting with prostitution. 
And what they did is they, this is a trigger warning, they used a, a practice called virginity testing, and they painted women protesters as, you know, um, you know, having no, being, you know, sexually promiscuous and being against the culture and the nation. Um, so they equated, so again, we could see here the way that this idealized concept of motherhood and the woman belongs in the home was used to repress the revolution. But then what's interesting is it's not just, you know, horrible dictators or white supremacy that target women or, you know, idealize this idea of the woman has to be in the home and a mother. It's also activists do it. So leftists, social justice activists. So if we think of what leftists or social justice activists do, and we could see this in Chicago with the you know, movement for abolition, the critique of police violence in Chicago, where there's a sensationalism of mother's tears. Can anyone think of an example of that? Might be hard to remember, but, but what happens then is that when we think of communities targeted by racism, what we end up doing is we, when we, we um, uplift that person's mother as the ultimate victim. You know, it's like that saying, like, there's nothing more, you know, sad than the tears of a mother, right? And so in that move, we erase the person. Like, does anyone know George Floyd's mother's name? But how many times have we heard George Floyd's mother? Right? And same in Egypt. So um, the person who sparked the Egyptian revolution was a man named Khaled Said. He set himself on fire after, you know, living in poverty and facing all these challenges and just, you know, his setting himself on fire, that was also in Tunisia, actually, but in Egypt, they followed that. But his mother, images of her were all over the internet, and no one knew her name. Her name was Leila. And today, Ala, who I told you is like the poster child of the Egyptian revolution today, there's a huge international movement called Free Ala. Most people don't know Ala's mother's name, but she's always referred to. Um, her name is Leila, but she was also incarcerated. We don't know anything about her own struggle with the revolution. So on this note, um, when, uh, and now I'll just move a little bit to a bit about the revolution. So my research in Egypt was focused on how women activists used mothering as a strategy for resistance. So why am I talking about, so I'm not gonna go into more about how the state uses mothering or targets mothers. I'm actually talking about the power of mothering and how in the face of all this, mothering has been used in many societies as a strategy to, you know, challenge oppression. And so in Egypt, if we think about mothering as a strategy of resistance, we could think, I want to point out that when I say this, I don't only mean that this matters if you care about women, or it matters if you care about Women's History Month. If mothering is that political, and that essential to white supremacy, to colonization, to authoritarian dictatorships maintaining power, then mothering is not just a woman's issue. Mothering is a political issue and relevant to anyone who cares about politics and social justice. So what we're saying then is, um, if, so if mothering is that important for the regimes, for the governments to maintain their power, that also means that when mothers enact activism and mothers participate in revolutions, it also means that their activism has a powerful potential to disrupt oppression. So and I'll put it to you in another way. Let's say we said that, um, that dictatorships require the heteronormative family and heterosexual marriage. So let's just say we, that is actually the case. Lots of research shows that. And that requires women to, you know, be mothers out of these heterosexual marriages. That is essential to dictatorships to maintain the organization of society that, you know, supports their power. So what, it, what would it mean if mothers said, no, I'm not going to stay at home. I'm not going to reproduce this idea of this idealized family where woman is in the home having babies for the, for the nation state. 
that would mean that mothering is disrupting the, the core foundation of authoritarian dictatorship. So that's kind of what I'm getting at, the power of radical mothering to not just challenge like gender norms, but to actually disrupt society at large and the powers that be. So one of the ways I talked about this in my research um, on motherhood in Egypt is I talked about how the pro-Mubarak activists, those are the people for the regime and the army, tried to intimidate people by, um, so the, the revolution took place in Tahrir Square. How many of you have heard of Tahrir Square? So this was where the sit-in happened, where I said that 17 million people overthrew their dictator. It was a square. So it would be like Millennium Park. So pro-Mubarak activists, what they did is, one of the things they did, so people slept there. They had tents and they camped there until he left. So one of the things that those, those you know, people supporting the regime did is they, they basically wanted to like starve the protesters um, to kill them through starvation. So they wanted to make sure that those activists couldn't get any food. So what happened is that they made it impossible to bring in supplies and they obstructed the flow of food and medicine going in and out of the square. So my research shows that in that moment of those 18 days, that sit-in would not have continued. And Mubarak wouldn't have been ousted if mothering forms of labor, like feeding people and keeping them warm, as well as emotional forms of labor, like caring for each other under moments of distress, if that labor wasn't you know, enacted, the sit-in wouldn't have sur survived. Um, and so I'll give you an example from a woman, Shireen, who I interviewed. She said, I called friends to tell them how to take things in without being attacked. My friend told me where the secure entrance points were and they, where they were confiscating things. She told us, don't make the blankets visible in the car because there were tanks blocking the entrance. But my friend told me to park far away and arrange for me to meet someone. Two young people came and we carried the blankets in and the other thing, things. And so there was another chant, there was a chant happening throughout the 18 days that said, sit in, sit in, until they let the food in. So this kind of, you know, analysis that I developed, um, you know, draws on this idea that um, forms of labor that tend to be devalued, like feeding people, like emotional work, like keeping people warm, these are forms of labor that our society and Egyptian society devalue. They see it as secondary and less important to the real work, basically the work that people perceive men to do, as more important. But what I'm saying here is that the survival of this revolution necessitated forms of labor beyond masculine forms of labor, like giving speeches or fighting the state you know, with weapons. So, Forms of labor that are usually feminized became urgently revolutionary. Under these conditions of life and death, protesters affirmed the value of reproductive labor. So the circumstances of battle brought the value of mothering labor into relief and created an opportunity for traditionally gendered and invisible work to be recognized in new ways. So in a way, that's my analysis isn't to say only that mothering labor is important to politics, but it's also to say that it is constituted, meaning it also has within it, like mothering forms of labor also has the potential to create um, changes in the future that wouldn't be possible without them. So what I mean by that is by changing what kinds of labor are valued as political forms of labor. Mothering work challenges the state's idea of um, what's masculine and feminine, what's, um, what, where should we, wh what kinds of politics matter? How is the nation state organized? So one of the things that ends up happening in Egypt is that men and women both started enacting reproductive forms of labor because it was essential to the revolution. So in this one moment of the 18 days, the entire gender division of labor was transformed in Egypt. 
And so, um, so in that example, then, you have a blurring of how society is structured. And how society is structured, society is structured based on what's called a public-private divide, right? That there's public, which is political, and private is the home, and private is secondary to public-political. But what we see here is what was considered private forms of labor were absolutely essential to politics. So that disrupts the organization of society in important ways, which we could talk about in question and answer if you want. But now I'm going to go to another theme that helps us think about the power of radical mothering, which is another place where public-private became blurred or challenged in Egypt, meaning the division between home and politics, or private and public. So this is um, a, an area of the research where um, some women were, couldn't go to Tahrir Square. They were, stayed home. Why? Because they were caretaking for children, and some of them had newborns, and they just couldn't go participate in the revolution. So if you just took like a masculinist way of seeing the world, you would just say those women didn't participate in the revolution. They were at home. Because we assume that home is not political. We assume that home is private sphere. It's secondary to politics. But actually, a lot of women who stayed home played a huge role in the revolution from their homes. What did they do? One of the things they did is that one of the ways that the Mubarak regime was trying to crush the revolution is spreading, surprise, surprise, fake news. We know another authoritarian dictator who spread fake news. So um, spreading fake news was all around, um, you know, and that actually worked. It, some examples would be that a rumor was spread on TV that Israel, who people would feel is an enemy of them, and the United States um, were behind the revolution. So they painted this idea that the revolutionaries were traitors to Egypt, where actually the revolutionaries were trying to create democracy in Egypt, but they were painted as being like pro-America or pro-Israel. That was one of the rumors that the news was spreading. So some women who stayed home, they were, you know, they were activists. They, they had already been part of like social justice activism in Egypt. So they didn't just wake up one day and decide to do this. They were already working with activists. But they were home because they were with their children. So they started um, disseminating um, what was really happening in neighborhoods to counter and challenge what the news media was saying. So they would do that when they went to the store to buy groceries. They would do that when they talked to their neighbors in the apartment buildings. So they challenged state propaganda and inspired neighbors to support the revolution rather than the regime. Um, here's a quote from Dima, and these are all pseudonyms. People everywhere were believing state propaganda. Protesters would send us information, and we would distribute it in the neighborhood to pass consciousness to people by talking with them. Um, so I'm just going to go on for the time. Um, but I actually wanted to quote Angela Davis because she talks about how black women during the period of slavery in the United States who were responsible for their households while encouraging those around her to keep their eyes on freedom. So Angela Davis has a long essay on how the kitchen within um, you know, the homes um, during the period of slavery were key sites where black women and mothers were enacting politics. Um, and so then we can go to another major, you know, way that the state tried to crush the revolution is that they shut down the internet. They shut down Facebook, they shut down Twitter, because social media was one of the key ways the revolution was, um, was growing. And so um, one woman who stayed home with her kids, she was really knowledgeable about technology, and she also had, you know, played a huge role in social media activism in her past. So she said, and her name is Ranwa, she said, you know, while she was home, when the internet was blocked, I was working to retweet with a hashtag that posted directly to my Facebook account during the 18 days. And then she says, I became a news feed. So she became like the social media feed of the revolution from her home when they shut down the internet in Tahrir Square. So what this did, and it helped create um, she helped create a, what's called the Egypt Influence Network that Twitter users use to influence each other. And so, you know, this was e exceptionally substantial. She was retweeting people um, 
you know, in order to also challenge the mainstream media, but also help the revolutionaries, you know, know what was going on when they were completely cut off. So they were, so the example I gave of Dima and Dunwa, we could call the kind of labor they were involved in um, what's often called invisible labor. It's like a feminist term to talk about labor that women do or mothers do that's never seen, but is essential to, you know, the running of society. Um, so when we think about um, invisible labor, another way to think about it here is that staying at home didn't require women to decide whether they were participating in the revolution or not, but it inspired them to ask how they would participate in the revolution. So what it does is it, again, blurs the public-private divide, but it also, it, when we pay attention to the role of mothering in the revolution, what we do is we, all of us, you know, might rethink how we define the spaces where revolutions happen. Where do we usually think a revolution would happen? Or even an uprising like the George Floyd uprising. Where do we see it happen? Where do we say, where do uprisings happen? Where do they happen? Urban areas, downtown. Anyone else? The street. But what's happening here? What's another place of revolutions that we ignore? Yeah. And what about the examples of Dima and Dunwa? The home. Revolutions are happening from home. So, uh, and this isn't, you know, just the 18 days. This is every revolution, every uprising, every activist movement, but it's been ignored. Um, so ultimately, now we'll go to, um, let me see what I'll go to next. This section I'll skip, but you could ask me about it. It's called um, Passing the Revolution to New Generations. And so this section's about how Egyptian mothers, um, you know, educated new generations, not only their biological children, but, you know, all the children that they're in relationship with. It could be their nieces and nephews, their neighbors, their friends' kids, that mothers were coming together and helping kids make protest signs, creating, you know, um, art projects related to the revolution, talking to kids about challenging what they're hearing in the media. So all of that is essential revolutionary labor. Um, so I'll just move now and just mention, uh, and what it, uh, okay, I'll just uh, go now because of the time to, um, I mean, last comment really on that, passing the revolution to new generations. It's kind of like how we think again of where do revolutions take place that's in, this, in the streets, right? But that act of parenting, passing on political consciousness as part of your parenting labor is a different form of revolutionary labor because what it does is it weaves politics into the fabric of everyday life, which is a quote that Alexis Pauline Gums um, stated in the book Revolutionary Mothering, that revolutionary mothering weaves the fabric, say, of revolution into the fabric of everyday life. Okay, so I'm gonna, talk for a couple minutes about Palestine and then I might wrap up soon. So in Palestine, the work that I'm doing with Suzanne and uh, Suzanne really played a key role in making this part of the research happen with her, um, you know, history as a researcher um, and an activist and a person who grew up um, in this community with connections to Palestine. And so I, I mentioned earlier that um, targeting women's bodies and targeting Palestinian motherhood has been essential to Israeli colonization, meaning the taking of Palestinian land and replacing the indigenous Palestinian people with a new community you know, of um, Israelis and uh, creating the Israeli state on Palestinian land. And so in that process, again, I said that targeting motherhood is important because you don't want Palestinians to have more kids, basically. So what that means is that Palestinian uh, mothers often get stopped at checkpoints when they're in labor and the Israeli um, army makes it really difficult for women to actually just give birth. That would be an example. Or there are lots of other like population control policies. But what we found in our research, and that's well established, there are many books about it, but what we found in our research and what we write about is the targeting of homes. So home demolitions, but also just, you know, showing up and doing a raid of someone's home that the Israeli army will do that to Palestinians. 
So this is an important site because who is often at home? Mothers. And so mothering becomes this, you know, important, um, you know, form of labor around both protecting children, but also fighting off the targeting of your home or the potential demolition of your home. Another issue here is um, family separations. It's, it's pretty essential to Israeli colonization is separating family members from each other with walls, with incarceration, and many other checkpoints and many other strategies. And so um, what we talk about in this part of our work is this uh, another concept that I'm going to throw out at you, which is um, the concept of reproductive justice by extension. So in this part of the research, what we do is we show that we need to expand how we think of, say, the fight to support mothers. Because usually we think of, you know, supporting mothers around their biological reproductive capacities is going to be about supporting, say, their right to choose what they do with their body. But what our research shows is that if we really want to have like a politics of radical mothering, we need to expand how we think of reproductive justice. So, and that's where we bring in these, all of these discussions about um, people struggling to parent and care for their children with safety, people struggling to be free from the coercion of life-threatening state violence. But also, um, one of the dominant ways that Israel, but also the US, enacts this colonization and racism is by blaming uh, black, indigenous, and people of color mothers. So Palestinian mothers are often blamed as bad mothers who are raising terrorists or who don't love their children because they throw them out into the streets to throw rocks at Israelis so they don't even care if their kids die. Um, and similar in the whole history of US enslavement and genocide in the United States of indigenous people is this idea that, it's, um, that black mothers are to blame, say, for the, you know, crime that is blamed on black communities because they're bad mothers. Um, and so this is another part of reproductive justice by extension is disrupting this rhetoric because this rhetoric reinforces the targeting of Palestinians as well as communities of color. Um, and so we can now go to the last concept, which is the concept of coalition. And I talked about building solidarity from Chicago to Palestine, which is another part of what our project is about um, the project that I mentioned that I'm doing with Suzanne on radical mothering in Chicago and Palestine. So one of the groups that we work with is called Mothers of the Kidnapped. And this is a group of mostly black and Latinx Chicagoland mothers whose children were uh, tortured or framed by the Chicago police. And in that experience, they were convicted or they were sentenced to most of them life in prison. So, so a lot of people refer to that as wrongful convictions. Um, and what happens is people focus on the survivors of the wrongful conviction. Um, and so it's sort of like, um, you could say, a masculinist approach to social justice or a patriarchal approach. Like, let's say we all said, this is really messed up and I want to do something about it. So what happens then um, is that people then say, these men were targeted by the cops and they were wrongfully convicted and we need to get them free. So the main focus of the activism are the individuals who were targeted and who are incarcerated. So what makes that a patriarchal approach to say prison abolition or you know, social justice is that it focuses only on the people living inside prison walls. It assumes that Prisons affect people who are imprisoned. But it doesn't take into consideration that when one person's incarcerated, who else is affected? The entire family and community. And who's disproportionately affected? Who do you think? The mothers, aunties. They're the ones who are usually carrying the burden of visitations. They usually go to court, and when they go to court, they get treated with a lot of racism and disrespect and dehumanization. They tend to spend almost all of their money on commissary, on driving six hours and getting a hotel room to visit their loved one. They're also the ones doing the emotional labor of supporting the incarcerated people. So in short, what I'm saying is a feminist approach to prison abolition seeks to dismantle 
we talked about earlier dismantling public-private, you know, binary thinking or opposite thinking. But here we're saying that a feminist approach or a radical mothering approach to prison abolition would say we need to think beyond the idea of inside versus outside prison walls, that these are two different, you know, groups of people. They're connected, and so we need to get rid of this idea. So our work on, um, with this group, Mothers of the Kidnapped, that's what they call themselves, Mothers of the Kidnapped, um, you know, I won't have time to go into, you know, that also is an example of reproductive justice by extension, because what we're saying is that they are targeted, their mothering has been targeted by the state. Their mothering has been targeted by the Chicago Police Department. How has it been targeted? The state has taken away their capacity to love their children, to hug their child, to protect their child, to have a relationship with their child, to spend their birthday with their child, their son's birthday with their mother. So that's what I'm, we mean by reproductive justice by extension. The extension part is because they're, like, they weren't directly targeted by the state, like the state didn't incarcerate them or sexually harass them or deny them the right to have an abortion. Their children were targeted. But in the process of their children being targeted, they were targeted too. So that's why we call it reproductive justice by extension. And so what does that mean for coalition? And why do I even talk about coalition? And I'll say this in one minute because I want to have 10 minutes for your questions. Why do we call for thinking about Chicago and Palestine together? It's because the US and Israel share military technology. They share strategies that are transferred to local police officers. So that means that the Israeli army, all the way across the world, is sharing strategies of policing with the Chicago Police Department. So that means that some police in the United States are trained by Israeli soldiers. It means that they're sharing equipment and they're sharing strategies for a repressing activism, meaning the tear gas you might see at a protest and how do you get activists to like go home. Some, Chicago, some police in the United States learn that from Israeli strategies. So if the US and Israel are working together and sharing strategies of policing and containment, then it means that if we want Palestinians and say black communities in Chicago to be free, we should probably join, join forces. Um, because you know the state, the US and Israel are already ahead of us and we need to catch up with them because they're already working together so, you know, we need to get ourselves together and, um, and also work in coalition. Um, so what that means then for um, radical mothering then is, you know, I could just summarize by saying that um, by creating more opportunities for, say, mothers in Palestine and Chicago to, you know, get to know each other and see that their struggles are connected. I mean, one of the most powerful moments I ever had in my work with the mothers that kidnapped was at a protest in front of the, of the, um, the court um, in, in Chicago on, on California and 26, where one of the survivors was having a court date and we all went to support the mothers, all the mothers came. And I heard one of the mothers in our group talk to a new mother who just walked by and her son had also been targeted by the police. So they started talking and she said, oh, that happened to me. And then the mother of the kidnap from our group said to her, she pointed at me, I was far away, but I, you know, I could overhear her, she said, um, they experience it too. And she was referring to me as an Arab person from Jordan connected to Palestine. And she was teaching another mother in Chicago about how what's happening in Palestine is similar to what's happening to them. And that was incredibly powerful because it's rooted in an expansive vision for liberation that recognizes that, um, you know, we could say that liberation, so let's do the radical mothering thing, I'll close with that, that liberation from state violence depends on. So I'm gonna close by saying that what I'm saying in this talk is that if we really care about liberation for all people, and we really care about freedom and social justice and ending racism and colonization, we need to realize that state violence depends upon, uh, liberation from state violence 
will depend upon caring, care work, mothering work, loving each other, and fighting at the same time, feeding and clothing one another, and creating social change, mobilizing more activists while making sure everyone has food and water. This is why this project is rooted in the idea that if we can join struggles from Chicago to Palestine and commit to decolonization and abolition, but through a reproductive justice lens, which is one that centers you know, radical mothering as an important, expansive way of doing politics, then we can ensure that more and more people will be free and that love, care, community building, and joy are at the center of the journey towards liberation and the afterlife of US empire that many of us are waiting for. Thank you. So what would you all like to talk about? I know that was a lot. Not, I, I wouldn't say it was, it was a lot. And um, it was really helpful, Nadine, and mind-blowing. And I want more of this. Um, this is being recorded. So for those of you that want to go back and reflect more on some of the analysis uh, that Nadine brought to us today, please feel free to do that. Um, what a timely topic on the occasion of International Women's Day to look at and to reflect on the roles that mothers and women and community caretakers play in revolutions across the globe um, here in Chicago and in the Arab region. And I mean, I can't thank you enough for bringing this topic to our campus and having us think about this um, in the different ways that you presented to us, Nadine. Um, I want to go ahead and open it up for Q&A. So I have the mic. We'll pass it around so that it can get, you know, on the, on the recording. Um, so if anybody has any questions or thoughts. All right, let's hear it. There's a question here, and I think they'll need the mic. Okay, so I have a question regarding going full circle about the liberation of radical mothering along with the way that it would affect a father as well. So it would have to go full circle. I feel it would be as effective as possible. Um, that way it would have twice the effect that um, radical mothering would as well as radical fathering if that is the term for it. So maybe there's a way for male figures to get involved. That way uh, we can all come together for full circle and you know, make, make a bigger change. Well, let's just give it up for this question. That was just so beautiful. I'm so happy that you asked that. We have a papa in our group, by the way. In our group, Mothers of the Kidnapped, we have a papa. But uh, that's not the answer to your question. The answer to your question is that one of the things that we do is we say, um, first I'll answer your question, then I'll, first I'll say this and I'll answer your question in a, in a deeper way. Um, one of the things we can do is we can talk about um, mothering labor and care work. And care work expands it. So, you know, because usually when we think of mothering forms of labor, we think of women. But if we say care work, it expands to what really is the move that the whole talk was probably, you know, would be like a, one of the most powerful points this talk could have made. Another point maybe is that we need to, I just didn't have time to make all the points. We need to disaggregate, which means separate mothering forms of labor. When I say mothering forms of labor, I mean forms of labor that have historically been associated with women's work. So when we explain it like that, it means anyone could do mothering forms of labor. It's just that society associates that form of labor with women's bodies because sexism and the nation state are rooted in, or the sexist nation state, which all nation states are sexist, are rooted in the idea that womanhood is conflated with reproductive biological capacities. So I'll say it differently. 
There is a definition of womanhood at the heart of all nation states that associates and combines womanhood with reproduction. And from there, you get forms of labor, like feeding people and keeping them safe and emotional care work, as being tied to only people who have the reproductive capacity to birth. So in order to get to your beautiful vision, we would need to dismantle the association between mothering forms of labor and biology. So we would need to then have a different vision for mothering forms of labor and care work. So what we need to do is take biology out and basically say that mothering doesn't have to assume that you're mothering based on, say, your biological children. So therefore, so this isn't just for papas or fathers or men. It's for people who don't have kids. It's for queer and trans people. It's for, you know, mothering should be something that everyone participates in, right? And, and you can't really get to that radical vision if you reduce motherhood to biology. So, and that is actually the point that I was trying to make. And in a way, we're making the same point, but I just couldn't talk about fathers. That thing that I talked about, Tahrir Square, where women and men were keeping people safe, men were taking on mothering forms of labor. And in that act, where everyone was committed to feeding people, in that moment, that is the moment that embodied the radical potential of the Egyptian revolution to disrupt authoritarianism and to create a democratic society. So disrupting the gender division of labor is essential to democracy and social justice for everybody. So yeah, you have a really good point. <laughs> I know the time is, but I'm happy to stay and answer questions if people wanted to ask another question. So if folks want to meet with Nadine for a little bit, since we are at the hour, um, please go ahead and do that. Can we give it up? Another round of applause for Dr. Never. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, everybody. You're welcome. <laughs>